Welcome to the Moving Forward Podcast. This is your anchoring host, Rio, and as our guest today, we have John Munitz. John is, uh, he's been on before, but back then his program, The Hill of Roses, was just a little old podcast. Since then, this founder and president of the Hill of Roses Network has turned it into a much bigger project with 22 different uh, people working working for the network. So it's really quite quite a uh, journey you've been on since then. John, say hi and tell us a bit about what you've been up to. Hey, Rio, how you doing? It's been a bit. And yeah, it's been a very exciting time being able to grow what was just a podcast into something larger. I think, frankly, some of this was kind of due to the circumstances of the year in terms of having some more time getting to work from home allowed me to have the ability to organize something into something larger. And I had this pursuit because I wanted to all along when I had a channel try and do something that was more, you know, building towards something. A lot of channels out there and like the independent media I always saw were just basically they represented an ideology. They would look for content that either was very pro in their content and want to make sure the public at large is aware of this development or it's taking pot shots at people saying stupid shit from the other ideologies out there. And so I wanted to try and do something a little bit more positive. I wanted to do something a little bit more constructive. And I figured the only way you can scale something up is trying to get more people involved and trying to get more voices in the room of how we can do this organization. And so we now have this goal. As of the end of this year, we're going to be looking to try and get more into the organizing side. Right now, we've been building up the media network to be able to put out articles, podcasts, as well as soon we're going to be coming out with a comic series. And in 2021, we're going to be organizing for these four key objectives, universal basic income, democracy reform, universal basic services, and our our core values of freedom, justice, and security. That's what the Hill of Roses is trying to achieve. And we're trying to get more people involved in our volunteer network. Wow, that's uh, that's quite an undertaking. And uh, in many ways, it's compatible with what I'm trying to do with the Moving Forward podcast. Um, my, my contribution to this sphere is basically I'm just trying to exemplify that conservatives and progressives can work together, that we don't have to be enemies, um, that when we work together, it's actually better than we're, when we're at war with each other, and that our actual enemies are radical regressives, uh, which, uh, are, which, which undermine both conservative and progressive values. Um, and, and so just basically exemplifying that conversation and progress, uh, are, are possible, um, when we work together, democracy depends upon it, in fact. Um, so yeah, I'd like to ask you a bit more about what you're doing with media because you're doing a lot. I know you're doing some debates and stuff. Yeah, we, uh, recently had what we call a candidate supporter debate, our most recent debate in featured uh, supporters of Donald Trump, of Joe Biden, of, you know, Howie Hawkins, Joe Jorgensen, as well as Mark Charles. So we had five contestants debating on behalf of their candidates. And it was a great affair being able to have a, at least a much more productive debate than what we saw between Joe Biden and Donald Trump beforehand. I thought that was a really uh, disgraceful debate compared to what was a very nice civil conversation with a variety of uh, different opinions in this field. I thought all the candidates there that were represented were being great jobs out there, in my personal opinion. Like it was a succinct debate, hour and a half, and we got to cover five large topics. And it was interesting to hear 
you know, some of the people come from radically differing views of like, do we have to be stuck in this two party system and we're making the best choices of what is in their opinions, realistic. And I understand that being realistic versus taking these more idealistic policy approaches, some of which align more to myself in some cases. So it was a great affair getting to host that. Yeah, no, that sounds really interesting. I'll be sure to check that out. Um, of course, that was my immediate my immediate takeaway. Well, really, two of them. One is it's amazing that just five regular people could do a more civil and informed debate than the actual two presidential candidates did. Although I don't think that the blame for that falls on Biden. I think it falls on Trump being. Oh, just I largely to- agree. Yeah, <laughs> he just I wasn't. Agree he wasn't cooperating with the process. He didn't, he didn't go I into had. that with good faith. He he went into it with the intention of essentially acting like a terrorist. And just blowing up the whole affair, right? Just, oh, yeah. Just no, he interrupted it making sure that the American people didn't get a real affair. debate. Yeah, he interrupted 128 times during the affair. And if you think about it, it's a 90-minute program. Roughly half should go to each candidate, minus some time for the moderator. So 40 minutes, you're getting in 128 interruptions. It was really crazy. One of the advantages I had as a moderator, though, that Chris Wallace didn't, I got that handy-dandy mute button. And I think that's something that if they're going to do another debate, they got to at least have that. I want to hear these candidates actually express their ideas on the subjects. I don't want you to have to butt in as the moderator constantly. But like when you've given someone time, give them the time to speak and then you can speak afterwards. I think that's just the way we can have a productive conversation. And I think the American people are do that. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, Unfortunately, as uh, the popularity of Donald Trump shows, too many Americans don't want that. They don't want civil debate. They don't think that there is any benefit in working with the other side. They just want to cheat and shout the other side down and do whatever it takes to win at all costs. Yeah, no, I think, frankly, it's partly the system's design, though. When you have this system that has basically forced a duopoly in a large extent, obviously one is superior to the other, but I still think Both are going far off from what the American consensus is on a lot of these different policies. I think we need to recognize that there are misincentives of the system. There's going to be polarization when you do a first past the post system compared to something like rank choice vote, score voting, you know, approval voting, star voting. All these different systems have a very different alignment to what, you know, the people have to think about rather than attacking one another, trying to convince them to leave their candidate. You can instead just try and convince them that your candidate is better. It focuses the race on a lot more positive aspects. Yeah, I definitely agree that, uh, you know, we're both Yang gang here. I definitely agree that we need ranked choice voting and and democracy dollars and several of the other democratic yeah. reforms that he suggested. I just don't think that we're going to get them by pretending like we already have them, right? So there are people who are fighting and working to, to, to pass ranked choice voting at the state level and succeeding at it. Yeah, I think those people are doing a lot more to move it forward than people who just, you know, vote for Joe Jorgensen or whatever. Oh, no, I don't disagree with you in that respect. I think the Democratic Party is better on democracy reform. I'd like to push them to go further, but they're the clear favorites to get something like that done. We got the For the People Act through the House. Pretty substantial democracy reform. Again, as I said, I'd like it to go even further. But, you know, I think that's a great show of faith that they are the party that wants to at least try and get some reform passed. And I think Biden supports democracy. Gerrymandering part. Yeah, no, and, and Biden, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. I thought you were done. And, and, and Biden supports democracy dollars, which is an important thing to not forget. Has he come out with that? Like what what amount has he given on that? I have not seen the voucher program from Biden yet. 
It's essentially Yang's policy. It's when when Biden um, decided to become a unifier in the party, which was desperately necessary. He's not. He wouldn't have been my choice, uh, but I do have to give him credit for his becoming a unifier. He reached out to each candidate and embraced at least one of their policies. And the one he took from Yang was the democracy dollars. See, I had thought it might have been like some of the stuff like the drug decriminalization part, because I didn't think that was a traditional Biden position. I knew he was doing that with marijuana, but then he came out at another point and saying he thinks that should be applied for all drugs and then having mandatory, uh, you know, rehabilitation. That was something. I Yeah, yeah, no, that, that's a policy that a lot yeah. of people had, not just Yang. And, and similarly, you know, Yang, uh, Biden's position on on healthcare, his version of a Medicare-like public option, is actually quite similar to Yang's policy as well. I mean, no, there's a little bit different there in terms of the cost sharing. I think well, no, they're not identical, but I just think it's, it's definitely more progressive than the Affordable Care Act, for example. Oh, of course. I, it depends on how much ammunition they try and use there. There's been conflicting reports, but if you believe the platform and you trust them on that regard, it would be a good policy. Well, I mean, I would say at a bare minimum, if you don't trust Joe Biden more than you trust Donald Trump, you oh, have, I, you have, you're a bad judge of character. <laughs> yeah. So you got to deal with what you have at the moment. And I think, you know, if you are mistrusting of the both popular candidates, I think you have to ask yourself, if you're wrong in mistrusting them, who's going to at least give you something better? Like, maybe they could be giving you the straight answer of what they want to implement. Go for it then. Read the actual policy platform. I see so many people tell me he's running on nothing. And I say, you know, he actually has a pretty good policy platform in a lot of areas. I just disagree with him on a couple of key things, especially when it comes to foreign policy as well as bank regulation. But like everything else there, I'm like pretty okay with. And you, I think you can take that as a small victory in getting away from Trumpism. No, it's quite a large victory. I mean, if uh, if Biden was running against a normal Republican like John McCain, um, then I would be less worried, significantly less worried about the fact that the left seems, you know, totally willing to let him lose. Um, but he's not. Yeah, he's running against a wannabe fascist dictator, frankly. I, I don't know how they can stomach that. It, it just I don't even get the strategy behind it. Like there's no angle to which I can see trying to have Trump have somewhat of a higher chance from voting third party or not voting makes sense in my opinion. I'm not going to shame anyone for doing the voting part for third party. I, I have no love for the people who don't show up and vote at all. But, you know, I frankly think it's very important that we try and get him out of office. And, you know, I think we should be doing everything we can to try and protect people to vote because those that get suppressed from their vote which is a large tactic that Trump's trying to do by, you know, announcing this intention that the election's going to be filled with fraud, uh, I think is going to make us need to show up and protect the vote this year and help anyone who wants to vote be able to vote uh, in this election. Yeah, no, I mean, cre- creating chaos and undermining faith in, in America is not a patriotic thing to do. I think it's fair to say he's he's willing to throw us into civil war. I think, frankly, his answers at the debate stage did not leave me with the encouragement that he's going to go easily if he loses this election. Oh, I mean, he told a, a borderline terrorist organization to defend the polls so that Americans can't vote. <laughs> it's pretty bad. Yeah, like there's a process to become a poll watcher. You don't just like show up and start watching like you actually sign up as a job, basically volunteering to do this. Uh, so yeah, and your job I, is to I, help I people vote, not, not stop try them. And suppress the vote by just getting armed people out to the polls. That would be bad. 
Right. And and then, of course, also stand by, because if he loses, then, you know, you should be you should start, you know, take your guns out and start shooting the libs. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think we are at a little bit of a gun disadvantage. So I would like to avoid that circumstance. And so I'm waiting to see who's going to step up to try and just make this a unanimously clear victory. So there's no like even rationale that fraud could have tipped the scales a little bit. Uh, Exactly, exactly. That's actually the number one argument I've made for why people should not vote third party, even in a blue state. I think that Trump needs to lose by such a by such a margin that he has no claim on legitimacy. Yeah, I this is why I'm now in the Biden camp in 2020 compared to in 2016. As I said, I'm in New York. So this state is guaranteed blue for the most part. Uh, I went to Jill Stein in 2016. Uh, but now I recognize that I think Joe Biden needs this like blowout to basically show that there is no ifs, ands or buts about the legitimacy of this election. Even if there's marginal errors of fraud, you know, the rates right now is like point zero 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 two percent to point zero 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 nine percent. I think we have to just blow them out and there's no ifs, ands, or buts if we won this election. And then he'll yeah, be and to be clear, no matter how perfect a system you created, you're never going to get fraud down to exactly zero. I mean, yeah. so that's just, uh, that's a typical authoritarian strategy where you say you, you can't achieve absolute perfect guaranteed utopian democratic process. So you might as well just throw your hands up on the whole charade. Yeah. And I ask, which is more fraud lacent? The people not being able to vote in record numbers because they've been denied it due to the safety of the ballot this year because of the pandemic or the notion that there's going to be excess fraud because we allow mail-in ballots. I understand it that I want more people to vote, period. I think whatever we can do to make the vote more easy for people should be done. And mail-in voting has shown very low fraud rates. I'm not going to say zero, as you just said, but it is astronomically low. Zero is impossible. It's an unreasonable expectation. Yeah. All right. So moving on to the, the next topic. Uh, first of all, I'm just really happy to see, John, that your uh, Hill of Roses thing has taken off as, as much as it has. And at the end at the end of this conversation, I'm going to invite you to tell our listeners how to join your movement and support your cause. Um, but before we do that, uh, part of the reason I ask you to come on this time is because you have done a heroic and brave thing recently, which is that you have been standing up to some of your own fans. Um, and you have been standing up for what you think is right instead of just telling people what you think they want to hear. Um, and when there's more money to be made and pandering to one extreme or the other, I, I always think it's really noble when content creators instead say, look, I know I could make more money by just, you know, towing the party line, but I'm going to tell you what I think is actually true. And so I really respected that. So can you talk a little bit about, uh, I mean, I've done the same thing. I have alienated so many people in the Yang gang by... <laughs> by just telling what I think is actually true. Anyway, um, so I'm happy to see you doing that. Talk a little bit about your political journey recently and why you went down that road. So I don't want to say that I was attacking my own supporters because I don't think that's the right framing of it. What I would say is that I have noticed this trend from being part of what I would call like the progressive left for a long period of time. I was a Bernie Sanders supporter in 2016. I was supporting Bernie in the 2020 election up until August. I was a DSA member since 2018 with lifetime membership. And, you know, over time, I had realized from being in these left wing circles 
there were some things that I 100% agreed with, and I still do, and I would not say I'm not a progressive of sorts. What I would say, though, is that there has been a rise in radicalism, and this has been shown in both the growth in the support levels of things like communism or like anti-state Marxism, as well as the use of violence for political means rising within the past four years. And so it was feeling like, you know, I did moderate on a couple of policies over the past election cycle, getting to work with people in the Angang, getting to be exposed to a variety of opinions and getting the sources provided on a lot of these policies. It can really open your eyes on a couple of policies here and there. Things like, I'd say, maybe immigration and gun control issues, I became a little bit more moderate on. I would also say there was some application of how do you do a transition plan for healthcare as well as climate policy? Those are things that I thought were transitionary things in my own perception of those issues compared to last year. And I think just this extreme of how they want to get policies in this rigidity of ideology that's been preventing them from doing any coalition building and has been basically just attacking anyone that's not in your exact group think has really made it difficult to try and align with this group to want to progress these goals. And I also think like if we are constantly going to have this left wing be basically portrayed as the radicals, sometimes justified, but sometimes not, it's sometimes you have to say, okay, if they're going to co-opt our branding and say they're progressive, why can't we just say our ideas are moderate? We are moderate on a global stage. A lot of these ideas like having universal health care, you don't have to be completely a left winger who believes in socialism. You could be a social democrat and just say, okay, this just makes sense because it's more cost effective. It's a more humanitarian thing and it gets people up on their feet so they can be more productive. I think we can just reclaim what is moderate and we don't have to embrace some of these kind of more extreme tactics of the use of violence. 33% of the Democratic Party now believes it's justifiable to use violence as a means to be able to achieve political ends. Mind you, Republicans, it's even higher at 36%. But this is a rise from what was 8% only three years ago. So there is a rise of polarization. And I have not necessarily moved that far away from the left. I think the left has furthermore gotten more to the left and have embraced these things more like communism compared to democratic socialism as of late. Yeah, you know, I, I think your characterization is exactly accurate. Unfortunately, you know, people confuse two different things. They can they confuse the contemporary U.S. political spectrum um, with, uh, you know, what what you called the global spectrum, and and frankly, it's not just what you're what you're advocating is not just centrist in terms of the global spectrum. It's centrist in terms of the theoretical avenues theoretical avenues available uh, to a government. You know, I mean, people we're, we're, we're I, I like to point out that we're not as far right as a society as people say we are. I mean, we do. Every liberal democracy has social democracy already to some extent. We already have public schools. We already have Medicare, which is a form of socialized medicine for some people, at least. Uh, we, we, we already have programs like Medicaid. We already have, uh, you know, so, social security. We already have welfare and food stamps. There's a lot of things that would not exist in a truly far right society. Yep. Um, we are already are a social democracy. And so advocating for reforming and improving um, the mixed economic model that we already have is moderate and is centrist. 
Yeah, no, I 100% agree with you. I think it's really just a built-in inefficiency in the system. And one of the things that I try to frame my own ideology, because for most people, social democrat is a term they can readily understand, but I try to prescribe myself more as a democratic universalist because the difference I see in models is that this social democratic system basically allows a lot of these means testing programs, which is still a model built into a lot of these Scandinavian countries. But I think these universal models tend to actually work out better because of reduced administration, as well as less people are falling through the cracks. So I think that is really an advantageous differentiation. That as well as I actually believe a little bit that we should be having a mixture between representative democracy as well as direct democracy. We should be having national annual ba- uh, referendums. Yeah, I mean, uh, don't, I, I, I think you and I would draw the lines and policy in, in different places. Um, but broadly speaking, I like that distinction and and generally agree. In fact, I, I, I don't think that necessarily arguing for universality verse, uh, of social programs versus uh, means testing of social programs even is moving to the left, right? You know, it's uh, it's another way of being centrist in terms of the avenue of avenues available to government like we said um and in some ways it's actually moving right i mean if you're if you're a right winger like i am a center right person not a far right person you're a center right person in part because you believe that the middle class is getting screwed by this system that takes too much of its money and gives it too little in return then doing away with means testing and letting the middle class that's actually fitting the bill for these programs get the benefits of them um should be something that people on the center right should welcome as progress Yeah, I think it's just there's so many common sense reasons for it that I don't understand why we still use the means testing system other than they want to be able to add more and more conditions to reduce total spending on it. I think they've been trying to make it a very difficult avenue for people to actually get help. They are trying to force people to jump through hoops. And I think a universal system just simplifies things and makes it sure that everyone who needs help is going to get some help. And then if you want to live a more comfortable lifestyle, Beyond the basics, yeah, we want you to be able to work and contribute to society too. Yeah, I, I definitely think there's some of that coming from the right. And I, I think that there's also a similar problem coming from the left that is just um, also misguided. It's this idea that any money that you spend on something that benefits somebody who, quote, doesn't need it is money wasted that could have gone to someone who quote does need it. And, you know, so they're, they're um, the, unfortunately, we have a situation where this unfair and ridiculously wasteful and toxic and in many ways harmful and limiting means-tested system that hurts the middle class and uh, traps people in the welfare tr- because of the welfare cliff is is unfortunately being propped up by people on the right and the left for different misguided reasons. Yeah, and I think they just don't get that you can balance it out on the tax side of how you want to actually make sure the benefits even out to what the you know means-tested version would do. Yeah, fr- frankly, they also don't understand that, you know, there's there's nothing good about making a middle class person pay a higher effective tax rate than an insanely wealthy person, right? I mean, it, it, it doesn't. You can get universal programs and actually lower taxes on the middle class if you just did away with a, a lot of loopholes and things that make it possible for people like Donald Trump to just pay seven hundred and fifty dollars in a year. 
Yeah, no, I think that's the whole thing. When you make the system more complicated, frankly, I think you're going to make it more gameable for those that have more resources and therefore a better understanding of the economic system or can hire the experts who understand the economic system. And yeah, so and yet, unfortunately, when you, you see that you, know, you mostly only see people on the relatively right end of the spectrum advocating for simplifying the tax code, I mean, that should be a bipartisan thing, frankly. Yeah, I'm, I'm not saying we have to go with all flat taxes. I don't believe in that. But I do believe we need to make the tax code in general simpler. I've seen some people try to take it to that extreme where we don't try and have other forms of taxation and we become overly reliant on just one or two. When you look at a lot of these successful nations, what you see is they have a much more diversified tax code. And they do end up using a little bit more often these consumption taxes than we do in America. They have a VAT. We don't. So that's something we should embrace. But we should not be doing away with things like an income tax, in my opinion, or property taxes overall. Like I don't. Well, I, I think if we did, I think if we were to have a flat tax, um, we could make it more progressive than the so-called progressive tax code we have right now by just doing away with the loopholes that wealthy people use to avoid it paying yeah. their share, and just raising the standard deduction high enough that um, you know the middle class and uh, um, is paying a lower effective tax rate than they are now, and and the the working poor would be paying nothing under such a system. Yeah, and you could even borrow parts of what the Biden plan has been trying to do for children. You could just be having this be a monthly pay where it's basically an advance on the tax credit or the standard deduction, as you're basically saying here. I would prefer doing a tax credit so you can actually give it out as money in advance. But I, I agree. There's a lot of ways we could streamline the tax code that is not just, you know, you know, regressive by simplifying it and making it more understandable. Like, I think this has easily been something the Republicans have stolen that is, you know, we as the left should be embracing a lot. Like, I remember, uh, who was it? I think it was even Herman Cain who wanted like one page bills, something like that to the effect. Now, I'm not going to say one page, but yeah, we should be advocating for shorter, smaller bills that we can not have everyone jam in, try and special interest groups into the bill. Like, let's just get like a, for this stimulus crisis, just like a universal basic income bill out there. Kamala Harris has a bill out there. Can we just get a flat vote on that? Let's not try and package everything together for a stimulus bill. Just yeah, not Uber. to mention it results in these bills that are so cumbersome that they like almost nobody who votes on it has even read it. I mean, <laughs> yeah, how can like, they be effectively you, representing no, their constituents yeah. if they don't even know what's in the bill they're voting on? Yeah, it's so crazy. Like a lot of the times they get this in like a two page window. They throw the bill out to their aides. They break it up into portions and then they get some reported. It's like, and that's if they're a good senator trying to actually understand it. Some of them, as you just said, there is these special interest groups and they're like, okay, the group's going to vote this way. You should vote that way. And you're like, okay, I'm just going to do that because they don't actually want to have to read the whole bill. And a lot of these people are getting lazy, especially the Republicans, because, well, they're paid to do so. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about this, um, this reframing, if that's how you prefer it. I, I, I understand. I didn't mean to characterize it as you were, you know, flat out assaulting your own listeners or anything like that. That's not what I meant. But like you were standing up to some people on the left as somebody who was calling yourself left. Um, and, uh, you know, you did it in some ways on Twitter that I, I just really honestly couldn't help but respect your, um, honesty and your courage. Uh, you made, you made one statement where you said something like, look, if you're gonna, you know, if you're going to keep 
uh, claiming that in order to be left wing, you have to be, you know, a violent communist revolutionary, then fine. I'll just start calling myself a centrist because I don't want to be associated with you guys. Uh, I thought that was pretty ballsy. Yeah. I mean, frankly, there has definitely been more of an animosity between the left wing and just basic liberalism compared to the ideas of communism. And I just, I, I really wonder for some of these people, do they understand how theoretical communism is, the inachievability of some of these baseline goals of classlessness, statelessness, and moneylessness. I think they never understand that you use these authoritarian means of transition, of revolution, and they never end up achieving that goal. And you end up usually in this very hierarchical system that's just statist. And so you're not actually achieving power for the people because in this transitionary period, you had to use force and power to achieve it. And even when you get into this classless idea, they're going to have to have a state authority imposing this. And so I frankly just wanted to say, okay, you know, am I going to achieve my means from what I know is a factor of only still around like 30%, and this is of the youth, now embrace ideas like communism. While we have the majority of the electorate still having these kind of traditional values that don't support communism. How do we get these progressive ideas through? We start acknowledging that they're not left-wing ideas. These are just catching up with the basic premises of the rest of the industrialized world. It's egalitarian in nature. We just want to establish these basics and be a well-functioning social democracy. That's yeah, not, not to mention the fact that if you look at the if you look at so, what's going on in the world, every every society that the quote left likes to point to as an example of of the success of you know their socialist ideology are just normal social democracies, which are capitalist with a strong, robust safety net. And I we could do better than that. We could we could you know do liberalism 2.0 as an upgrade and human capitalism and take Yang's non-means tested, more universal approach. Um, but by no means is that synonymous with moving left of Switzerland. It's just another way of approaching moderation in politics. Yeah, I, I just think it's like we have to ask ourselves – does the country ever want to truly say we're just going to be left wing in total nature? I think in a large part, we keep aiming at the moderation of the country. We've been trying to aim with this in different degrees, and I think it's been pulled right in some respects. But I think we have to ask ourselves, how about we start grabbing the center and start guiding it to where we want to be calling the center? Like we so often are just trying to pull from the very end of the rope rather than coming up closer to the point of the rope and then pull. Like, I think that needs to be established for saying these ideas are not, you know, revolutionary. This is common sense, people. Like, let's get down to the dollars and cents. Let's build out a transition plan that doesn't leave people behind. But let's start investing in ourselves. We've built an overly complicated system that has overly helped the rich time and time again. The incentives are, of our politicians aren't working. And this is in turn making the incentives of the economy skewed towards the largest companies and is screwing small businesses. And this is obviously being exposed by the last year's amount of crises. This is an extreme people. This is a moderate position. We are just in extreme times. Yeah, I, I'm you're preaching to the choir here. And, you know, something to be said about just the rhetoric that you're using is you will get the votes of people like me. 
which is a lot of people in the Democratic Party, arguably more so than, you know, the folks who say Stalin did nothing wrong and the DPRK is secretly a worker's paradise. Yeah, that's it's just how do you win on an electoral level when you embrace that type of stuff? Like, I think people are not being pragmatic. You kind of need to say, how are you going to message to the public so that you're speaking their language? Don't try to make a language and get people to adopt a new language. Americans already struggle trying to be, you know, bilingual. Don't try and have to give them this whole code and make them have to read Marxist theory in order to get it. Like, come on, let's get it down to these simple, universal policies and getting them a say in their own damn country. Like, let's get down to the basics of we have power in different institutions. We have the people and the collective. We have government and we have these private institutions. The power has been skewed to too many of the corporations that have been being able to buy up these politicians. And we, the American people, don't have enough power right now. Yeah. And I think it's worth pointing out. I think it's worth pointing out that when uh, you have corporate capture of the state, that is not decentralization. That is by no stretch of the imagination something that the actual right should really welcome. I mean, that's not a small government. That's not decentralization. That's not a separation of business and the state. That is that's that's kleptocracy. And that kleptocracy is as hostile to capitalism as full on communism is, frankly. Yeah, no, it's just state socialism in a lot a lot of ways because or let's call it corporate socialism. I'll borrow Bernie's term of how he uses it. Yeah, I, I, I disagree with Bernie about most most things, but I think that he's spot on when he calls it corporate socialism. That's exactly what it is. When the government is taking money with force from a regular middle class person and giving it to a corporation, what else would you call that? Yeah. And if you look at the stimulus bill, like I'm not going to say that it didn't have some beneficial things in that CARES Act, but the distribution was largely to large corporate compared to the people. And I think it's a damn shame Agreed. that they did that. I, I would have to challenge the process of how it got there so unanimously in consent. Like and, 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 and went to huge corporations instead of, the, instead of small businesses too. Yeah. And the PPP, that largely exposed a lot of the flaws of the you know small business administration. The definition of small business is frankly embarrassing at this point. <laughs> so it didn't end up giving the benefits where it was really needed, where the job loss was most extreme. Yeah, I, I, I agree about that, John. And and to be clear, I not I'm not hearing you as saying, hey, you guys, you know, we have to we have to, you know, put on a sheep costume on our wolf here and sneak in and, you know, trick, trick these moderates and, uh, you know, center right conservatives um, into voting for us so that we could turn around and, and bite them and, and, and go for full fledged socialism. That's not what you're saying, right? You're what you're saying is way more honest than that. You're saying like, look, I don't, I don't want, you know, full on, state ownership of everything. I think markets have some benefit. I think that we just need to refine the way that we're doing our mixed economy so that it works better for regular people. And that's totally, it is moderate. You're not, you're not lying about that. That's just true. Yeah. It's just basically two things. One, it's realigning where are we putting our benefits that the American people get? And secondly, it's reframing how we build programs from means tested to universal. It's really not that extreme to say we should try and do things more efficient and we should actually 
think strategically about how we invest in people. Sometimes the best approaches is to do it directly, to do it simply, and to do it universally. And I think this is going to help secure freedom for people because they can take more chances because their basic livelihoods have been secured. This is going to help spur on tons of new small business growth because you have things like basic income and healthcare secured. And I think this has been what's been really struggling in this country, huge economic divides. And you can either go from it at a more socialist approach of attacking the top of the pyramid constantly, or you can go from it from the people's approach of just let's secure benefits for the people and make sure no one's getting left behind. Yeah, yeah. And and especially when you have a radical like Donald Trump who knows he's unpopular and knows he's perceived as a radical. And so the only strategy he has available to him, and by the way, this isn't just about him as a person. This is just he is the head of that party. I mean, the, the GOP's platform is literally whatever Donald Trump says, which we know changes in the middle of a sentence sometimes. Um, so, you know, when you have somebody like him where his only real strategy is to try to lie and first and, and, and convince the general public that the alternative is even more radical, right? Why make that easier for him by, by, uh, rhetorically associating yourselves with, with, uh, the radical left? It's not necessary. It's just totally shooting yourself on the foot. I, I, I think. Yeah. And you know, I think it goes beyond just left, right, like ideology. It goes into just like basic symbology of these movements. I think when you look at the fringes of right and left right now, the right still is immensely patriotic, even if they are extreme to the point of being domestic terrorists in our nation. The far left of the country has basically said they want to destroy this nation. And so when you look at the extremes, Pointing at one says, okay, they're going too far, but they're embracing our traditional symbols and they actually claim to love this country. The other group says they hate this country. And I think when you get down to a branding war, the American people do not want to destroy their own nation. They love their nation and they want it to improve when they advocate for these changes like I am. When I'm saying that America is leaving a ton of people behind and causing unnecessary casualties, as well as committing atrocities abroad in our foreign policy, I'm not saying that because I hate America. It's because I want America to do better on the global stage and to improve the world as a whole. And I think that is a large respect of why we end up losing is because, A, revolution sounds like hard work because it is. It is hard to overthrow a system, especially one as mature as our own today. And two, they're not on board with this idea of hating what is this nation. So many people came here fleeing from the rest of the world because they love the idea of what America. Yeah, many of them fleeing hate. communist countries, in fact. Yeah. So it's just like I, I, I completely prescribe to some of the actual policy ideas of the left. So I don't want to say I'm completely leaving that, but I just think those ideas can be brought into the center. You just have to like actually talk about the issues in a more moderate framing to make sure they understand how common sense this is and embrace some of the common values and, you know, symbologies of this nation. So they realize that you do love this nation. There's a reason why so many immigrants actually, when they try and ingratiate themselves into the community, they embrace the flag. I know they shouldn't have to because they don't, shouldn't feel like people might hate them for simply being an immigrant, but that stuff works because people want to know that you are trying to be someone who's contributing to the country and loves this country. Yeah, yeah. And and to be clear, 
um, I do not think that the alt-right is patriotic. What I think they are doing is that they are perverting the symbols and the rhetoric of patriotism in the name of a deeply anti-American and un-American and unpatriotic, treasonous, terrorist attack upon America. That's what it is. Um, but that fools a lot of people. And, and, and when the contrast is another group of people that's just as radical, but, um, but, you know, doesn't even pretend to love this country, whatever you're right. I mean, that's, that's just stupid political strategy. So I, yes, I think that you and the democratic party generally should distance yourselves, um, from, from, from the radical left. And I think you're right, you're, you're right to do so. And you're right to just be honest and say, look, look. This is a moderate centrist approach. We're just reforming things. We're just making things a little better. That is all. We don't want to. We don't want to tear things down. We don't want to burn things up. Um, we're not taking what's good about society for granted. We're just going to improve it a little bit, or a lot of bit over time. And that's uh, that's just a better message, and and that it's compatible with being patriotic and compatible with loving your country. Like I, I don't think people should be nationalists. But there's a huge difference between just being patriotic and being a nationalist. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that point. But I do want to also make sure it's clear. I wouldn't call people who prescribe themselves as democratic socialists as necessarily radicals. I'm talking about more often people who prescribe to be communist or anti-state Marxist. I think a lot of the people who are democratic socialists embrace actually still a pretty moderate framing of the idea. It just became the more, you know, popularized label under a Bernie Sanders campaign, um, as well as it building out a national organization infrastructure compared to any social democracy movement. Uh, I think that it just has to be differentiated because I think a lot of them are just simply using poor branding a lot of the times and actually have some really good ideas. So I don't want to completely say I'm hating and want to distance myself from a lot of the democratic socialists that occupy the democratic party because they're actually trying to achieve their means through democratic ends. And I can wholly respect people who want to work through our existing processes to achieve their means compared to violent revolutionaries that a lot of communists prescribe to be. Well, yeah, no, I certainly agree with that. I mean, it's better to be a democratic socialist than to be a violent socialist. <laughs> That's undeniable. Um, that said, you know, like, as we, we said throughout the course of this conversation, you know, I'm going to draw the line at a different place from how you're going to draw it. Of course. I will vote for a social democrat like yourself all day long. I will never vote for a democratic socialist. And the reason is because even though you might be advocating the same policies in the short term, the long-term goal of the Democratic Socialists of America is actual socialism, and I just oppose that on moral grounds. I, that's fair, and this is why I think, frankly, it's a more reasonable position to be a social democrat, but I just wanted to make sure that I was not uh, foul-mouthing that side of the party, because I actually appreciate them a lot. I think it's just some of those more radical elements that do need to be called out and completely separated from. Yeah, that's fair. That's kind of how I feel about um, the... The, the the far right, which is not the same thing as the alt right, I think it's important to point out. But you know, the far right, the, there are a lot of people who say like, "Oh, I'm not going to settle for anything short of completely gutting the entire social safety net overnight." And it's like, dude, you're you know, even if you believe that's a good thing, um, that's never going to happen because the even most Republican voters don't want that. <laughs> you know, sometimes people just uh, you know they make the perfect the enemy of the good uh, on both extremes. Sometimes it seems. Oh, 100%. And I think it is when you are thinking too ideologically. One of the things I really appreciated about 
you know, Yang's movement is they did try to prescribe to looking at the data first rather than saying, does this fit my ideology's sake? And I think that's really helped me evolve on some policies. So it's not like, you know, I'm prescribing to be still, you know, somewhat center left, maybe center. I am trying to cultivate the center, but I still think I am center left. And I think, you know, you have to just understand that sometimes certain sides of the rights argument have some legitimacy. It's not always our side that's going to get it right. I think we get it right more often, but it's certainly not 100%. I believe it or not, I actually agree with that. As somebody on the center right, I think that, you know, our mistake is that we have allowed um, the left to claim this term progressive in the same way that the left has allowed you know, what used to be the right and now is this horrible fascist alt-right thing that I absolutely oppose. Um, frankly, I consider the alt-right and the far left to be morally equivalent. I think that they're both just awful um, and evil ideologies. Um, but yeah, we've, we've allowed the left to co-op progress as if the only way to achieve progress is to be left-wing. I mean, talk about giving, like unnecessarily giving the other side <laughs> too much. <Yeah. laughs> Uh, and, and and it's not just a matter of labeling either. I mean, we've forgotten that uh, you know progress uh, can be compatible with uh, with right wing right wing ideas. It's not always about standing in the way. Like, offer an alternative, recognize the problem is real, and 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 offer an alternative. We've forgotten how to do that. Yeah, because it's it does seem like it's just to leave everyone to themselves, and I think sometimes that is appropriate. But I think too often we have to realize one of the key advantages that made humans so successful compared to other animals is we know how to work together very well. And so we shouldn't just try and make government not work. I understand some people want smaller government, some people want larger government, but we should have like functioning government. We should have like people who actually respect science and technology and actually want to work together to get solutions done and can recognize when issues are legitimate. Uh, like there's going to be differences in approach. Some people are going to have certain issues as higher priorities than other. But like, let's come to the table with like basic recognition of common values that are going to help us progress forward. Like science and technology shouldn't be a left-wing thing right now it definitely is when you look at the polling on science topics it definitely is so you know we we welcome the republican party to start embracing science i would wholeheartedly accept that being a bipartisan idea yeah no for sure and um i'm frankly i don't even necessarily consider the republican party right-wing anymore they're some other thing they've like gone off the chart into you know, Nazi territory. It's quite frightening and it's not good for the right. It's not good for the right that we don't have like a proper normal right wing party standing up for proper normal right wing ideas. Um, yeah, <laughs> definitely on the same page there. I mean, actually, UBI is a really good practical example of this exact phenomenon. If you're on the center left or the center right and you look at Yang's proposal, and you compare it to the status quo, you recognize that from both of those perspectives, it's an improvement over the status quo. Whereas if you're a hardcore dogmatic idealist on the far left or the far right, and you compare it not to the status quo, but to your absurdly naive utopian ideal, then it doesn't look good. It's just the wrong framing for thinking about policy. See, the one thing I will caveat is it definitely has more favoritism on the left right now. Like wholeheartedly, even the people that do stray more to the further left 
still have a lot of support for UBI right now. It's only the people who, as I said before, are these true radicals uh, that usually don't because they want basically a moneyless society. And they think UBI is the way you actually save capitalism. And I always find it crazy. I always find that crazy when people say that save capitalism. It's like, wait, so if the system worked well, saved, that's a bad thing. Like if the system finally worked, why would you hate on it? Like saved capitalism. If you think capitalism is doomed to fail regardless, then you can't save it. So like, that's such a weird phrasing that I always hear from uh, my friends that are more socialist and communist leaning. No, you're, you're totally right. And honestly, I think that that was one of, one of Yang's failures. Um, he did a good job reaching out to Trump voters, but he did a terrible, abysmal job reaching out to conservative and, and center-right um, Democrats. Like, you need to get that, that coalition um, in order to win the primary. I don't know if that, frankly. I do think, in large part, one of Yang's hardest uphill battles was just going to be an experience factor. When you look at all the candidates uh, that actually were kind of prominent in the polling, they all had some government experience to them. Even Bloomberg was still a governor at one point. And so I think Yang just kind of was like, uh, you know, a messenger of key policy. And I think he was supposed to be an ideas guy. And it's great as far as he got, because he ran as essentially, you know, as they called him, he was a random man at one point. Yes, I understand he got awarded by the Obama administration, but like he was still kind of a random man to a lot of people. He was not a national figure. Um, and he certainly had never held elected office. So you're totally right. I, elevate yeah, UBI. I he was massively yeah. successful. All he needs is, I think, some, frankly, government experience for him to be treated like a real candidate in the future. Yeah, no, I agree. The lack of experience uh, was the number one problem. Um, and it could be that, you know, more centrist or uh, conservative or even center right Democratic voters uh, simply just held it against him, his lack of experience more um, because because they're more pro-establishment. They're not as much of a tear it down. They're not as comfortable with the idea of throwing a wrench into the system. They're they're by definition less radical. Um, so I, I agree that his lack of experience was the number one problem. But I, I think he needs to solve that. And he is solving it. Uh, he also needs to solve the fact that he didn't have any real viable connections with the the media on a national level, and he's solving that. He's trying to solve that, yeah. But also, also, you know, he is at some point going to have to persuade people who don't think of themselves as, you know, uh, anti-establishment, left wing of the Democratic Party, who's going to have to get some of those people to vote for him. And he can do that. I mean, his book, his own book made the case for that. All he has to do is say, look, we need to de-radicalize people so that they aren't voting for demagogues like Donald Trump. In order to save democracy and the rule of law and the Constitution and capitalism, we need to embrace this UBI policy. I mean, he he, he already made the case. He just, he just needs to bring some of those normal mainstream Democrats into the fold. So I have a question for you. Do you think that this is a like feasible idea, Yang 2024? Like, does that actually have merit or do you think he's going to need more experience? Because, you know, I wouldn't like if he did it, I would wholeheartedly get behind him and support him. Obviously, I'd look at the whole field and see who's there. But there's like a ninety nine point nine nine percent chance he'll probably be Yang. But like, I think he might need more experience to venture into the more twenty thirty two range, getting some maybe experience as New York governor under his belt. What do you think? Do you think twenty twenty four is something that is in the realm of possibility. 
Yeah, I, I think he would have a better chance in 2024 than than he did in 2020. Um, I think that if if Biden does not run for re-election, then Yang should run um, in the primary, and I would support him in the primary. But I think it would still be an uphill battle for him. It would be better if he had more experience. If Biden decides to run for re-election, right, then I think I think Yang should, you know, run for mayor of New York or something like that in the meantime, and then run in 2028. So do you think he would beat like Kamala Harris if she had ran uh, post Biden? I, I I don't want to speculate that about that, but I will say like he has only built up more of a relationship with the media since then. He's only um, established more connections with uh, the leadership of the party, including Biden. Right. And he may be in the Biden administration. That's political experience. Right. Yep. Um, and, and, you know, that's all that's all good. So his odds would would certainly be higher. I, I certainly agree with you there. It's definitely going to be higher. He's certainly not a nobody right now. He is certainly a mainstream candidate at this point. It's just I, I, I sometimes get nervous about the notion that he'll be able to take on Kamala. And I think I do still want Biden to win. So it's like, OK, we have that. So maybe it makes sense to just kind of game plan going through New York. But yeah, I mean, also, frankly, like, well, I like Andrew Yang as a person, you yeah. know, um, but he doesn't have to be president in exactly. order to make this happen. Like he he could make it happen in, you know, the second term of the Biden administration, for all we know, by just having Biden's ear for enough time and not just having Biden's ear, but having the credibility of being a member of the, exactly. the, 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 the administration, talking to members of Congress. I mean, honestly, it's easier to persuade people who are already in power than it is to totally replace every single member of the party in a primary. Yeah. I sometimes think that people focus too much on personality cults and not enough on just practical realities of what, what it takes to, to push policy through in real life. Yeah. And I think it's just, we got to stop focusing so much on who's going to get the credit at the end of the day. It's like, let's get in the room. Let's start, you know, showing the value of getting on board with some of our ideas in the power we wield by actually trying to, you know, get smarter, get involved in these down ballot races. Um, and then let's just, you know, keep building step by step. We'll find the right time to do it. And at the end of the day, the goal has to be not getting Yang elected. The goal has to be getting Yang's agenda or, you know, whatever your own variation of that uh, into place. Yeah, I completely agree, John. All right. So I'm going to give you the final word uh, is, I guess, uh, in signing out here, um, definitely tell our listeners how they can join your movement and, and uh, support your cause. Well, thank you so much, Rio, for having me on today. Uh, for people who want to be able to find more of our content, you can go to thehilloroses.com. That's going to put you in front of every form of content that we have. Uh, if you want to just watch our video content that I host myself, uh, you can go over to YouTube. We have that posted there. We also post all of our content on social media. So you can go to you know Reddit, Facebook, uh, Twitter. You can go to Instagram, all that good stuff. Just look up the Hill of Roses and you'll find that. And if you want to follow me directly, you can go to my Twitter at John Munitz uh, if you want to just hear from me directly. Awesome. Yes, please check it out. Definitely recommend it. John is a good guy. He's a good actor. I don't agree with him about everything, but he is part of the solution, not part of the problem. And uh, moving forward is our gumbo. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening to the Moving Forward podcast. Together, 
Through these conversations, we are all working to ensure that the Humanity First movement keeps moving forward. If you haven't yet, please visit our website at movingforwardpod.com, where you can support our Patreon. We will use those funds to advertise, to grow our audience so more people hear these important conversations. Thank you very much.